G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of The Moses Scroll. That's themosesscroll.com, themosesscroll.com. G'day, welcome back, Ross Nichols. Hey Jono, how are you this evening? Well, thank you my friend. And uh, pretty rapt to be getting back into, well this is our third uh, episode of looking at the text of the Moses Scroll, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about. But first of all, I think wh- where shall we begin? We we have a comment. Do you want? Should we begin with the comment? Hey, let's begin with a comment. I'm fine. All with right, that. let's do it. This is an excellent comment. So thank you to WTL WTL who left a, a comment, a very good one at that. Uh, WTL says, "I find this subject fascinating. Yes, it is. It is absolutely fascinating." Uh, so I totally understand. But so far, have failed to grasp what it is that has both of you believing it is an authentic predecessor of our modern Deuteronomy. Okay. Yeah. WT goes on to say, we don't have the originals to perform any tests on. All we apparently have are 19th century artistic renderings. Sure, some of the features which led scholars to reject it as a forgery, we have subsequently confirmed to be genuine from the DSS, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the sense I get, says WTL, is that about the only positive speculation to which one can arrive is that this is an ancient document in the same sense the Dead Sea Scrolls are. The Dead Sea Scrolls are all over the place in terms of uh, content and theology and simply represents texts that were in circulation at the time. Shapira's scroll simply comes, uh, becomes another such text. What is it that has you so convinced it's something closer to the original writings of Moses? Uh, these are great. These are great these, questions. I, I see it keeps going, but I, I think I think we're right. Go ahead and read through it, and then we'll come back through and answer. Okay. Uh, WTL goes on to say, What reason would anyone have to suppress the commandment not to hate one's brother in one's heart? And isn't it somewhat odd to have uh, that as a commandment along with the commandment not to murder one's brother? I mean, if you are considering murdering your brother, you probably bear some level of ill will towards him by this point. (laughs) Quite right, WTL. Uh Uh, WTL goes on to say, by the way, in terms of Exodus 6.3, which is something we addressed last week, um, the Exodus 6.3 problem, and this concerns the name of God, it would be nice if all bases are covered and people are given as much information as possible. Uh, Exodus six three, as you are well as, as you well know, Jono from the Torah Pels podcast covering Parasha Vayera with Nehemiah Gordon and Keith Johnson, uh, and he's got the link there. Uh, can be read rhetorically. Uh, that is to say, it is just as legitimate to read it as quote by my name Yehovah was I not known to them, which solves the problem of the elders uh, to which Moses is sent not knowing said name. And regardless of when you believe that this name was revealed, the name Yehovah present in Genesis is not surprising at all if Genesis was compiled with the rest of the Torah materials well after the name was made known, possibly from original source uh, tablets as speculated by P.J. Wiseman, whose hypothesis was quite compelling, if you ask me. All right. 
That's an excellent a lot, a lot, uh, to, lot to unpack there. But but by the way, you said it going into this, and I'll just uh, put the stamp on that and say these are excellent questions, hmm. and probably others have the same questions as WTL. For instance, how is it? that Ross Nichols and Jono Vandor are so uh, interested in this text, and we believe that it presents such a compelling case. Hmm. So so the first question, and we'll just touch on these. I think I, I told you, or before we, we started recording, I'll go ahead and confess, I told you that each of these could really almost present a show, but we're going to go through them, hopefully provide some uh, sufficient, at least groundwork to these, and then come back. Is that fair? Hmm. That is fair. Let, before you uh, kick off with that, let me just mention, I mean, uh, WTL is obviously a long-time uh, Truth To You listener, having uh, cited Torapels there, and um, and that's excellent. Uh, but I but I would just, uh, just in case he's, he's missed some shows, we actually started talking about the Moses Scroll a few months ago, actually, on, on the program. Uh, it began with a program called, and, and if you go to the front page of Truth To You and just scroll down, you'll see these. May Moses Shapira's name be for a blessing. That was the first show. Uh, Here We Gano Again, uh, in reference to... Um, yep, Claremont yeah, Claremont Gano. Claremont Gano. Uh, that was the second. Ibal Gerizim and the Moses Scroll, Theological and Geographical Challenges. That's the third. Um, the Nine Commandments, What is Unquestionably Genuine? That's another show. And then uh, are the blessings truly missing in Deuteronomy? We've done a number of, oh, and of course, uh, more recently, a bleak view of the Moses Scroll. That was, of course, uh, in reference to Friedrich Bleak's um, uh, introduction to the Old Testament from 1860, which uh, Moses Shapiro read and decided to take the Moses Scroll out of the bank vault in Jerusalem once again. So just um, WTL, if you haven't listened to those, we highlight a lot of what you're uh, talking about. It, they'd be worth going back and listening to. This is that what we're doing here with the text of the Moses Scroll is just moving through the text systematically, which is not what we were doing in those previous programs, Ross. Yeah. Uh, so, and and it could be that that WTL has already listened to those and still has could these be. questions. That's right. So, so let me just say. Um, you know, in, in the first part of this, he, he wonders what it is that has us believing it is an authentic predecessor to our modern Deuteronomy. Hmm. So just just to touch on that, the question becomes, is Deuteronomy, as we have received it in the Masoretic text, does that reflect the original version of the scroll of Moses, as we like to call it? And the reason that I that I phrase it and sort of rephrase this question that way is that's what mm. it comes down to. So sure. first of all, is it a predecessor of the modern Deuteronomy? We know, for instance, that in Deuteronomy 31, mm -hmm. in a couple of passages, it talks about Moses wrote a scroll until it was very till the very end, rolled it up, gave it to the Levites who placed it, you know, mitzad haTorah, mitzad haAron put it in the side of the ark. So we know that there is a smaller scroll mm. written by the hand of Moses. So that sort of suggests that there is a document within the document, if you will, or a sure. different form of Deuteronomy, let's call it, that that is perhaps reflected in our current Deuteronomy, but it's not the same. Uh, mm. A couple of other points. Deuteronomy begins clearly with the voice of a narrator. These are the words which Moses spoke to the children of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, 
there are quite a few examples of third person where clearly a narrator's voice comes in. Particularly of interest are those passages, what we call the final 12 verses of Deuteronomy, which include an account of Moses' death. So what we begin looking for is, where is that scroll? What, mm. what happened to that original scroll that Moses wrote? Now, it could be that the Moses scroll that we're talking about, Shapira's manuscripts, one could argue that whatever that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 31, they could argue that what we're talking about is not that scroll. Fair argument, mm -hmm. Let's sure. we can go there. Uh, but I would say that, first of all, uh, to directly address this, there are a couple of options on this manuscript. Number one, it's a forgery. This is what many people have said and say to this very day, is that the manuscript strip 16 in number that Moses Shapira brought before the scholarly world in 1883 Many claim that they're a forgery. There's another argument that says, well, they could be authentic, meaning that they're not a forgery from the 19th century. Let's say it is an authentic document, but it is similar to the other Dead Sea Scrolls. Now moving into the second part of uh, WTL's uh, question, uh, which led scholars to reject it as a forgery, we have subsequently confirmed to be genuine from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the sense I get is that about the only positive speculation to which one can arrive is that this is an ancient document in the same sense the Dead Sea Scroll are. So he's mm. right in that some have said it's not the authentic scroll that Moses wrote of Deuteronomy 31 as an example, but some are willing to concede that it is authentic like other Dead Sea Scrolls. And I would say that the probability of that being the case is a very strong argument. You could stop right there and not go any further with it mm -hmm. uh, because of some of the external characteristics that a 19th century forger couldn't fake. Sure. Uh, they didn't know all these things that we've discussed on other programs. Um, but then the first part of that comment says we don't have the originals to perform any tests on. Very true. I am currently part of a team that is looking for the manuscripts because ideally we would have these manuscript strips and today we have testing uh, the ability to test these mm. to verify and validate if they're ancient. Uh, we can test not only the ink but the uh, DNA material in the scroll itself. So that's true in that you, you almost need to have it in order to do these firm and final tests. Mm. But we do have more than artist renderings. What we have, and, and this is what interested me in this in the beginning, was we do have uh, two transcriptions that were produced in the 19th century. The first was by Hermann Goethe, and Edward Meyer, who mm -hmm. the first week of July in 1883 in Leipzig, worked through the text, and they transcribed from the ancient Paleo-Hebrew into modern Hebrew characters the text of the document. The, the manuscript strips were then taken to London, 
and Christian oh, David Ginsburg. Before we get to London, yep. can I interrupt you just for a second? Yep. Because uh, yep. this would be an opportune time for me to quickly ask you, you're working on, a, on another book already, and it's going to be out in a matter of months. Can you give us just a real little nutshell on that, having just spoken about uh, the transcription of uh, Myron and uh, Guta? Absolutely. So I'll tell you briefly that this second book, which is coming out in my goal is to put it out by the 1st of September. And that's for a couple of reasons. I want to correspond the date of its modern release with the date in which Guta and Meyer's publication, uh, Fragments of a Leather Manuscript, uh, was published in 1883. So I want Mm -hmm. it to correspond with that date. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to publish an English translation of their full examination of the scroll. They cover not only the story according to Shapira of how he obtained it, but they also talk about the the linguistic, philological uh, characteristics of the manuscript, and they give a transcription of the manuscript. This was published in German, and Mm -hmm. so uh, thanks to the Tylers, good day, David and Patty. They they hired a brilliant young German linguist by the name of Mitchell Gold, and he translated the German. I did the Hebrew. I will combine that with some background material by way of an introduction. And that full examination from 1883 by Guta and Meyer will be published by the fall. So... For the first time in uh, so English, we, so this is great. I'm really right. looking forward to that. So just to put that in. Now now it travels from there uh, to London. Go. That's right. It goes to London. Christian David Ginsburg is to this day uh, known as one of the greatest uh, Masoretic scholars, Hebrew scholars. He's one of the brilliant linguists of the day. He works through the transcription. He does not have, by the way, Jono, he does not have the transcription of Guta and Meyer. They're working mm-hmm. independently. So he produces a transcription, and then the two of those together provide us with a very good picture of what the scroll actually said. Now, in addition to those two transcriptions that mm-hmm. were published independently, we do have some artist renditions. One was super uh, superintended or supervised by Ginsburg at the British Museum, and uh, some of the great scholars of the day who were also artists did that representation of one of the fragment strips, which contains the Ten Commandments and the Shema, the by the important way. part. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, oh, by the way, now can I... A, yep. <laughs> again, can yep, I just interrupt ahead. you again? Because I saw another uh, work I think you put on Facebook of uh, Daniel Wright uh, having... Um, uh, done a uh, what what has he done here he's got he's got that um artist impression of of e and yep. uh put it in front of a backdrop of the wadi mujib from where it was found is that correct is that what i'm looking at that is that is what that is he he wanted to design me a nice cover photo he's a great artist and uh really good he's a scholar himself he i'm excited because he's got a book coming out but i'm not going to blow hey. that whistle yet i'll let him come on the show and talk about that, right. but he's he's uh, he's he's really good and helpful in geography, terms of geographical references, and so he included that picture of the Wadi Mujib, which is east of the Jordan River, where mm-hmm. the scroll was discovered. He included that on the cover of my book, and so he made me this brilliant Facebook profile cover. Uh, with the scroll fragment E superimposed on the Wadi Mujib. So, it's, it's really good. Uh, it, it'd make a great poster, I'm just saying. I think people would want to put it up on their walls. But 
Uh, just to mention, yep. okay, so let's keep going. Yep. So, uh, so we do have more than just those uh, artist representations. What we do have is two independent transcriptions. Mm-hmm. We also have several other artist renderings of various aspects of the scroll where they would represent what they saw before them and so forth. So we do have quite a bit to look at in terms of do we have what the scroll actually said? Right. Now, the, the question is, is that enough? And I would, I would challenge well, people, w- look at your modern Bible. You know, how far removed is that from the original? The question is about sources. We're looking for what is the earliest and most reliable source from the Pentateuch. This is what I'm talking about. Right. So even though we don't have, in fact, the oldest Hebrew Bible that we have in complete uh, terms of completion is the Leningrad Codex, also mm-hmm. known as B-19, and it dates to the Common Era. We're talking like 10th century. Mm. So that's as early as we have, and that is clearly an eclectic text. It's uh, it's a Masoretic text, which has sort of been revised over time. Now, since that time, I should say, that has become the Bible as we know it. So what scholars do is they look beyond that and they say, does that really get us as close as we can? It's one of the reasons that the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was so compelling for scholars to look at in terms of uh, where does where do we get the Bible that we have? Sure. You know, it's interesting to look at some of these biblical texts from Qumran and notice that there are variations between these. Now that brings us to the next point. W- it does, but before uh, we before we get to the next point, can I ask you? Um, yep. Did you mention? You may have mentioned this, and I, I may have missed it. But uh, in addition to the uh, transcriptions of Gutemeyer and Ginsberg, uh, Idan Dershowitz also brings to us in his book the Valediction of Moses, the transcription of Moses Shapiro himself. Is that? Fair to throw into the mix? That is very fair, and I'm glad you brought that up. I almost skipped right over that. What uh, Dershowitz published in his book is he found buried, really, in a document, a, uh, a book, if you will, of all sorts of loose pages that are mainly a catalog, a list of, a catalog, a list of documents that Shapira was selling or had sold to various museums in the ancient world. We know, by the way, that he was a dealer in authentic, verified manuscripts, uh, sold many to the British Museum, sold many to the Berlin Museum. And so in this document that was in the possession of a library in Germany, Dershowitz finds three pages which contain the better part of Shapira's own transcription of this manuscript. So we really have uh, Gutemeyer, we have Ginsberg, and we have a portion of the manuscript according to Shapira. Hmm. And, and I should also add that I have published on my academia page a running transcription by fragment, oh, yeah. by line, of all of those compared line by line. So you can see what did Gutemeyer see, what did Ginsburg, what did Dershowitz come up with, Mm. and what did Shapira say. So we're pretty certain about the most of the text. And uh, so so people can feel confident. They can still argue whether or not it's authentic or it represents an ancient uh, predecessor of our modern Deuteronomy, but we we can't say that we don't have a pretty good idea of what the scroll said. Hmm. Now, 
The next point is uh, ties in. The Dead Sea Scrolls are all over the place in terms of content and theology. Amen. Mm -hmm. He's exactly right. What we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, not only in terms of uh, theology, but as he points out, content. By the way, I'll add this, that when we talk about Deuteronomy, per se, we have four manuscripts of part of what appears to be a Deuteronomy-like text Mm -hmm. from Qumran. And most of these, all of these look like much more like the Masoretic text than the text we're talking about today. In fact, they show signs of harmonization that aren't even reflected in our particular Deuteronomy, where it's trying to bring it more in line with, say, Exodus's account. Um, So anyway, uh, why do I feel convinced that this particular scroll is um, uh, closer to the original writings of Moses. The first reason is because of its content. WTL mentions content, and theology, by the way, is also part of it. But the content is very interesting in that we have uh, all except the opening and closing lines, which is typical in all ancient documents, sort of an intro and an outro to a document, Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a consistent text which presents the words of Moses in the first person with no exception. It also has no anachronism. What mm-hmm. is an anachronism? An anachronism is saying, uh, let me tell you about King Og of Bashan's bed. It's in Rabbah, and it's still there to this, to this day. day. Mm. Well, you would think that means that it's written not as a contemporary piece to the document itself, but it was put into the text later as an anachronism, which suggests that the person writing this is writing it at a different time. And so this document contains no anachronism whatsoever. Mm. Another point about the canonical Deuteronomy, the Masoretic text, is that the geography is confused. And this isn't a matter of someone in the modern times not understanding the ancient lay of the land, but it's long been recognized that the geography in our Deuteronomy is confused, and um, it disagrees at places, the modern Deuteronomy, with what is mentioned elsewhere in the Pentateuch. One quick example, Mm -hmm. where is Aaron buried. He's buried according to the book of Bamidbar on Mount Hor. And if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says that Moses, I mean that Aaron dies and is buried in another place altogether, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, so-called discrepancies between the modern Deuteronomy and uh, what we find in the rest of the Tetratuch, as we call it, the other four books. So there are various reasons, but, and, and let me go ahead and say that in this document, we don't have that conflict. We don't have that tension. We, we have a very clear geography in terms of the route of the spy, uh, the route of the, um, uh, the journeys of the children of Israel makes sense geographically. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. And I think it's closer for several reasons. Another example If you read our canonical Deuteronomy, and we covered this in the Blessings and Curses 
uh, discussion, mm. is that our Deuteronomy chapter 27, after saying that it's going to give blessings and curses on Mount Grazim and Eval, respectively, it only gives the curses and does not give the blessings. Mm. Whereas this document provides the blessings, and the blessings and curses correspond closely to the ten words. So I think mm. that's very good. Mm. Um what reason would anyone have to suppress a commandment to not hate one's brother in one's heart? Now, that, that's a good question, and one of the objections that was raised in the 19th century and one of the biggest flags for people was that this Ten Commandments, Jono, mm. differed from what we have in the canonical text. Mm -hmm. The problem with making that such a dogmatic point is that we have two accounts of the ten words in the canonical Masoretic text. One is in Exodus 20, the other is in Deuteronomy 5, and those two do not agree. Mm -hmm. So we already have a problem to deal with when it comes to the ten words. Both of those accounts, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, say these are the words that God spoke from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and then they don't agree. Mm -hmm. So one has to say, well, which one reflects a more accurate, accurate. reading? That, that's right. And that, that's one question. The other question that we highlighted when we spoke about this was uh, the fact that, well, just the fact that different traditions divide these two passages up in order to make the 9-10. And there's reasons for that, and we do talk about it, but um, there are three different uh, ways that they are divided up in order to make the 9-10. That's something that was rather compelling as well, Ross. Yeah, one other point, uh, another excellent point. We really have to meet WTL. This person has really done their study and yeah. their homework. This is a good question. So, More, more comments, please, WTL, by the way. More comments. Would be good. And more comments from listeners in general. If you want to comment, if you have questions, please uh, leave it in the comment section after these programs. We would love to address them, Ross. Absolutely. So this question is very good in the sense that it, within the 10 words, he his question is very, or her question, I'm not sure, but the question of WTL is very straightforward. It says, why if you're going to already say, don't kill your brother, then why would you have to say, don't hate your brother in your heart? Because clearly... Mm -hmm. He says, if you're murdering your brother, you probably bear some level of ill will already. Probably. Yeah. So let me make this point another way. Um, if you already have a commandment that says, don't steal, then why would you have one that says, don't covet your neighbor's stuff? Very In good. other words, you know, so it's basically the same thing. Hopefully that mm. makes sense. No, that's now, good. And, and, and also, uh, can we also highlight the fact that um, Leviticus 19, from where this uh, commandment is represented. Um, is it verse 17, I think? I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Leviticus uh, 19, 17. Just quickly, some of the similarities of Leviticus 19 to the Moses scroll. I mean, this is clearly meant to be another rendering of the of the 10 words, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it looks like if you read through Leviticus 19, there are other similarities such as uh, in Leviticus 19, it says, at I think, 10 times, just like in the Moses scroll, where the Moses scroll says, Elohim I am God, your God, if you will. Mm. The Masoretic text of Leviticus 19 similarly closes each word in that passage of the Holiness Code with, uh, I am Yehovah, your God. 
Mm. So very interesting correlations. In fact, one of the uh, objections or reasons for doubt of the manuscript in the 19th century, somebody said, oh, I see this. Whoever the forger was not only stole a commandment out of Leviticus 19 and put it as one of the ten, but they also mimicked that I am God, your God at the end based off of Leviticus 19. Uh, now, one other point about the 10 words, if you go through the 10 words, pick whichever one you want, or look at them side by side like I did in another document I published on my academia page, where you say, how do I count these? Mm. So if you count the words in the 10 words, we know from three passages in the Tanakh that there are 10 words. In fact, they're never called the 10 commandments. It's always mm-hmm. Aseret, Hadevarim the 10 words. So what are the 10? Now, if you look at, depending on whether a person is Jewish or Catholic or Protestant, people are confused as to how to break these up. Now, some of your listeners may say, well, that's easy. You just go with the Jewish version. But if you count those, you find that it's very difficult to come up with 10 words. Now, they're not 10 commandments. There are more commandments in the 10 words than 10, by the way. Uh, But I think this one is interesting because there are clearly 10 words, and at the end of each word, it says, again, Anochi Elohim Eloheka, and the new commandment, if you will, the new word, begins on a new line. So there's no doubt that there are 10, okay? Uh, Just to uh, sort of throw in the mix as well, uh, because WTL begins that question with, what reason would anyone have to suppress the commandment? Uh, not to hate one's brother in one's heart. We're certainly not suggesting that someone did suppress it uh, as if this is somehow purposeful in the same way that we wouldn't uh, suggest that someone suppressed the blessings um, from Deuteronomy either. It just got lost somewhere along the way, evidently. Ross? Yeah, I think think that's the best way to describe it. And that's why I'm saying go count the words and come up with your list of what are the ten Um, It's very important to get this straight because basically now the wording is different and the arrangement is different in the Moses scroll of the 10 words. But what's interesting is that if you go through them, uh, you'll find that clearly you have basically what you see in Exodus 20 as well as Deuteronomy 5 with slight rewording and slight arrangement order. Oh, Oh, and one other thing. In this particular version, in the Moses scroll, God speaks in the first person. So whereas Deuteronomy and Exodus both say, and the Lord created heaven and earth in this many days and so forth, in this scroll it says, and I created Mm. in seven, you know, so forth. So anyway, first person throughout, very interesting. And it's interesting that, uh, as worth mentioning since you brought it up, that, of course, the Ten Commandments, both uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, start in the first person, God speaking in the first person. And then it switches over, uh, I think, during the second commandment or into the third commandment, it switches over into the third person. Both of those don't agree where that actually happens, uh, by the way. So uh, so that's interesting too. But, of course, as you just mentioned, the Moses Scroll, it is first person throughout. Yep. Exodus 6, th- verse 3. That, now, you touched on this in, in the last program. Yeah, Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, actually beginning in verse 2, Exodus 6, 2, and 3, presents a difficulty or a challenge to readers of the biblical text that causes us to have to come up with some solution. And this isn't a new argument. It, it isn't a new debate. This has come up 
for hundreds of years, actually. It's debated uh, not only in Jewish sources, but in scholarly uh, sources as well. In fact, it becomes one of the keys that scholars used in trying to determine the sources from within the Pentateuch. Uh, Who wrote what and when? And I know sometimes this uh, concerns people when you begin talking about this. But uh, as an example, whenever we look at this particular text, it suggests, and I think strongly, uh, I don't see there's any way to read this, and I have the greatest respect for both Nehemia Gordon and mm. Keith Johnson. I think they're yep. both brilliant Hebrews, uh, but I don't see that there's a possibility of reading this uh, as a legitimate way to say, by my name, Yehovah, was I not known to them? This implies that the text is not a statement, but rather a question. And uh, evidently, I didn't hear this program. Maybe you can shed some light on that. But evidently, this uh, person, WTL, says, hey, that's a pretty good reason. You know, maybe it is a question. But it caused, it caused scholars, Exodus 6, 2, and 3, it caused Hebraist all along. I've never read anyone suggest that this could be read as a question. What they said is that it presents a problem because prior to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, we have plenty of occurrences of the Tetragrammaton as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And hmm. so what they began to do was they, they began now, to now, look sorry at Sorry to interrupt, but when you yep. say uh, Genesis 2, verse 4, of course, prior to that, in the uh, initial um, creation story, it's entirely Eloist. That's right. That's right. And so what, what you see is Elohim, uh, you know, it begins, Bereshi, you know, Barah, Elohim, you know, and so forth. It just uses, I think it's used 33 or 34 times, just Elohim. There's mm. no mention of yod heh vav But in, when you get to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 4 and following, you, you see for a while, Yehovah Elohim mm. or Yehovah Elohim. It combines the Tetragrammaton with the, uh, the word Elohim. So then you notice throughout the text, sometimes it uses Elohim, sometimes it uses Yehovah. Elohim can at times later in the text, as you know, represent a God uh, other than the God. Mm. So, you know, people, you know, there are a lot of people who have adopted uh, one of these various name groups or whatever. And this is a very strong point. It's a big part of their faith. So but scholars believe, at least early on, I'm studying right now some 19th century academic approaches to the Pentateuch. And what they begin to make assessment of is and notice is that their speculation is that Elohim represents the earliest strata of referring to the deity. Now, the way the text most naturally reads is that in Exodus chapter 6, 2, and 3, Moses is introduced to the name yod heh prior to which, according to the natural reading of the text, he was not known. He was known to the fathers by El Shaddai, at least according to Exodus chapter 6, mm. uh, verse 2. Now, let me, let me make one other point. A lot of people, when they hear a little bit about the so-called documentary hypothesis, uh, the Eloist is one of those four. In other words, they feel like four authors, this is the general proposal, mm-hmm. that four authors independently wrote 
various parts of the Torah, and that at a later stage, these were compiled by editors or redactors, and then a final redactor pulled it all together. One of the things that they began to notice early on in the search for the sources, we call it, um, was they would notice what we call doublets in the text, two accounts, if you will, of the same story, and they separate those out and look at them. And what they found interesting was that one of the stories would use consistently Elohim, and the other mm-hmm. story would use consistently yod heh So I hear all the time people say, I don't believe in the documentary hypothesis because Elohim is used Early, I mean, yod heh vav is used very early in the text. And so they find a problem because their understanding is that Elohim, uh, that, uh, let me say it this, this way, that the Elohist document never uses yod heh vav And that's a misunderstanding. The, what the, the scholars say is that Elohim is used consistently in E of the JEPD, until you get to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, and then thereafter you can find parts of E that use the name Yehovah. Does that mm. make sense? I'm with you. So hopefully we've at least touched on, and, and I think we deserve this question, our series of questions deserves a little more attention that hopefully will be made more clear as we go through. Oh, absolutely. Because as we as we go through uh, the text systematically, we're going to be highlighting things and sort of looking at them a little bit deeper. Um, as you were just speaking about um, uh, the, the use of Elohim as opposed to Yehovah, uh, it reminded me of a book that you uh, suggested, you recommended to me about, I don't know, over a year ago, perhaps? Uh, I got it, and it was the um, Synoptic Harmony of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles by Newsom. Yeah. And um, an excellent, excellent book. But one of the th- I mean, it, it was the first time that it really got me thinking about uh, subjects like this because of um, the use of one um, representation of the name, whether it be Elohim or Yehovah, in, say, Chronicles, but not in uh, Kings. And uh, looking at it side by side, uh, really was thought provoking. Yeah, and and just while we're touching on when you compare side by side various mm. stories, uh, the Pentateuch itself has some other challenges when we talk about comparing one text to the other. And some of these we've touched on, but just to hit one, because just recently we went through the Torah portion that deals with the spies, if you will. Remember right. in in uh, Numbers mm-hmm. chapter thirteen. Well, in the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14, we have the story of the, it's translated in English, the spies. Uh, That story is also told in Deuteronomy. And what we have when we compare the account in Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers is we have some variation there. In, In one account, the people go to God and say, or the people go to Moses and say, let us send spies. Hmm. And in the other account, it's supposed to be God telling Moses, select men that are, and send them into the, the land hmm. to, to spy out the land. So we do have these tensions within the text. And what I'm looking for and what I hope to uh, discover as we work through this is what, what did it say 
at the earliest, you know, what was the original, if you will, of this Torah of Moses? You know, right. what was it before a later narrator uh, was included? And I'm not even suggesting that that is not uh, very important to understanding the text and that it contains some important historical data. But what was it that Moses wrote? That's what it comes down to. And one That's final point, yeah. in, in the Pentateuch, I was really interested in this because I was a, a bit taken aback when I was familiarized with some of these challenges. And so I said, well, what is, you know, I know what tradition says that Moses wrote. Tradition says Moses wrote Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 34, 12. But, but what does the Torah say Moses wrote? And as you work through, you'll find that there are basically seven references all in the third person to Moses writing something. And I cover these in the Moses scroll, by the way, so people mm -hmm. that get the book can read through these and see more of the evidence than what I'm covering now. But what I found interesting was I was working on this project to discover what Moses wrote, and I didn't know anything about Shapira, Moses Shapira, anything about his scroll. I'd never heard of it. But I had gone through the text and said, if we were to discover what Moses wrote in that little scroll that's complete by Deuteronomy 31, even though we have three more chapters left in the text, what would it be and what's in the first person? Only Deuteronomy of all the Pentateuch has mm -hmm. first person material. Everything else is third person. For instance, Moses is told, or Moses supposedly, did he write, Moses was the meekest man on all the earth. And the question should make us pause. Did the meekest man on all the earth say, I'm the meekest man on all the earth? And if he did, why did he use the third person? Mm -hmm. So there are these questions, but this document, one of the things that made me consider it as being, first of all, ancient and authentic, and second of all, as a candidate for the authentic Moses scroll, is that it uses first person, Throughout, uh, it is consistent in its content and theology. Geographically, it's sound. It contains no anachronism. And I think, uh, finally, it contains all of what the Pentateuch says Moses would wrote, that, I'm sorry, what Moses wrote, and none of what it doesn't say he wrote. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. has everything it should have, nothing that it shouldn't have. And that was some of the evidence that pushed me into a consideration as this being a candidate. I totally agree. In addition to that, uh, of course, it's written in the Paleo-Hebrew. And that brings us back to the text, because where we left off uh, last week, Ross, and I do want to touch on at least something in the text, because that's what we're supposed to be doing but we love again dear listeners we love the uh the comments by all means send us questions and comments we'd love to address them in regards to the moses scroll but where we left off uh last week was uh at an interpunct and we didn't talk about that last week but uh uh we read what elohim spoke to the people in horeb saying you have and there's an interpunct there and, and then it says you have dwelt long enough of this mountain turn and set out for yourselves and go into the hill country of the amorites to all the inhabited places in the Arava, in the mountains, in the foothills, and in the coast of the sea, and then that ends with an interpunct. Um, and we didn't speak about that. Tell us what these interpuncts are and how they serve uh, Paleo-Hebrew. Yeah, I had never heard of the term interpunct until I got into this particular study. But what, what we notice in the, the scroll, and the, the transcribers noted this in the 19th century, they said that 
throughout the text at what appear to be places in narrative shift or as we would consider punctuation, like uh, an ancient form of a period, the stopping of a thought, a, a stop within the text. There are these interpunks, and uh, this happens consistently through the text. And what the people in the 19th century, the scholars laughed at this because they thought, oh, man, you know what this is? The forger is trying to mimic what is evident on lapidary inscriptions. And lapidary just means inscriptions in stone or engraved. And, and so, for instance, the Moabite stone, also called the Mesha Stella, mm-hmm. uh, has interpunks. And in those documents, oh, by the way, the other thing that was known, the two main inscriptions that were being studied at the time mm. was the Mesha Stella, uh, also known as the Moabite the stone, and the Siloam inscription. Now, you Both have an article, right? These, I do have an article on both Tell of those, and, okay. and both are in the book, too, by the way. But, okay. but what's so interesting is that in those cases, in most of the ancient world, when we find these Phoenician inscriptions or inscriptions even in Paleo-Hebrew, what we see are interpunks, but they appear after every word. So you have uh, a word, Vayomer, and then an interpunct, and then a word, and then an interpunct, and, and they saw this. And so they thought, these 19th century scholars thought, Mm. we don't have any example, and they didn't at the time, of a written document on a scroll which contained interpunks. And they found it strange that we have two different things going on when it comes to these interpunks. One, as I said, they appear to form some sense of... uh, punctuation, as we just saw in this particular passage, but then in the ten words, the um, the interpunk occurs after every word, mm. with one exception, actually two, but it's similar. Whenever the word et, which is the direct object identifier, is followed by a noun, those two are kept within the same set of interpunks. So you have, um, I'll just you know, if I say uh, I, I could look at the Hebrew and pull one up for real, but uh, et uh, ha'aretz, for instance, because I was thinking about Genesis earlier, mm-hmm. et ha'aretz would be included. You'd have an interpunct before et and an interpunct after ha'aretz. Right. And the reason that that's important is grammatically now, those are treated grammatically as one word. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that this scroll does that. Otherwise, the text, by the way, is continuous script, meaning that the letters aren't separated at all. So words flow. You have to know where the break occurs between which letters to form words and then sentences unless they're interpunks. Mm-hmm. And in the 10 words, they occur every word. So this is another unique thing about this scroll. Now, after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, beginning in 1946-47, we discovered that, well, first of all, we discovered ancient documents were written on leather. There were some ancient documents written on leather that used paleo, but get this, the only scrolls that used paleo-Hebrew were works that were attributed to Moses. Mm-hmm. So Torah works, uh, and there is a book of Job, which by tradition is attributed to Moses. 
But Dead Sea Scrolls written in Paleo uh, used not only uh, interpunks, but they use them very similarly to what we see here, especially in the 10 words. So, and we'll get more into that when we get into those particular sections. There it is. Well, no, uh, one, I, I, one, other, one other thing we had to explain. I'm sorry, Jenna. No, uh, go ahead. Was the, the verses. How do we come up with the verses in this particular transcription and the translation? Like you'll see A1, A2, B1, B2. The way these are that we come up with them is that when Guta and Meyer in July of 83, they had 16 strips representing two manuscript copies of the same document. And they dis- they separated them into two complete documents, in essence, from the beginning. And they labeled the strips A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. And then they, uh, Guta and Meyer indicated the line breaks. So if a word uh, ended line one, they would put a vertical mark so that you knew that's the end of verse one in that particular mm-hmm. fragment. What I tried to replicate here in the Moses scroll and in the text is line by line, fragment by fragment, a way that we could use the text. So like if you call me, Jonah, and you go, hey, and you do this, hey, man, look at DA12, you know, or whatever, then I can go straight to it. It's like chapter and verses. It's a way to designate where we're at in the text. So when we refer to verse A9 or B1, that's our designation for fragment B first line, all right? All right. Well, that's where we're at. I think we stop right there, give people something to chew on, and then uh, we'll start back next week if that's good with you. Does that sound okay? That's what we're going to be doing, and we're going to be continuing from A4 is where we're kicking off. Um, Thank you, Ross, for um, for answering that so uh, so well, and thank you, WTL, TL. <laughs> WTL, yep. for your excellent comments. Once again, dear listeners, if you have comments and questions, please leave those. They're most welcome, and we'd love to address them uh, in the comment section under this post. And uh, we will continue on with the text of the Moses Scroll this time next week. And until then, have a great one. Have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.